You can easily criticise it by saying, well, you know, it's a bit stupid, actually. A chair isn't going to necessarily change your life. But there is something really kind of nurturing about it, both physically but also aesthetically, which, you know, can make you feel quite good, actually. Welcome to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. I'm your host, James Clasper, and I hope you're sitting comfortably, because this episode is all about one of the great mysteries of our time. Why are the Danish so crazy about chairs, and why are there so many wonderful uh, Danish chairs? We'll catch up with that guy in a second. And seriously, if anyone's got the answers, it's him. He literally wrote the book on the Danish chair, which you might easily argue is one of Denmark's crowning achievements. The chair, that is, not the book, although it is good. You see, along with cycling, Lego and new Nordic cuisine, Danish design has played a major role in forging the country's recent identity. And in a way, the chair epitomises that role. Still, there's another important question that I think's worth asking, and that's, does the world really need more chairs? Let's be honest. From armchairs to office chairs, rocking chairs to deck chairs, we've already got a lot of chairs and a lot of chair designs. Not for nothing did the satirical website The Onion run the following story a few years ago. Report confirms no need to make new chairs for the time being. At the same time, there are growing concerns about how bad chairs are for our health. By all accounts, our sedentary lifestyle is making us fat and ill. Sitting, doctors say, is the new smoking. Ahead of three days of design, Denmark's biggest annual design event, I, well, sat down with a trio of design devotees to ask them if the world really needs more chairs. Later on, we'll hear from the founder of a Danish company that wants to disrupt the way we design, build, and sell high-end furniture. We'll also meet the editor of Arc Journal, a brand new biannual magazine about architecture, design, and art. But first, we're heading to the Danish Design Museum in Copenhagen to meet Christian Holmstil Olsen. And here you have uh, Bauer Mogensen's famous Danish Shaker chairs from 1944. He's the head of exhibitions and collections, and he helped put together the museum's permanent exhibition devoted entirely to Danish chairs. If you take uh, Hans Wigner's uh, wishbone chair... This spring saw the launch of the English version of Christian's latest book, the Danish chair, an international affair. So I began by asking him about, what else? The very chairs we were sitting on. I'm sitting on this very healthy Danish chair, the Kiwi chair uh, from the 60s by Jørgen Rasmussen, uh, which is the Danish office chair, the best-selling Danish office chair. But you are sitting in a chair which is far more uh, interesting. It's a uh, a chair from Prime Minister uh, Torvald Stauning, who was the Danish uh, Social Democrat uh, Prime Minister in the 1930s, as he's, and he's called the founder of the Danish welfare state. Uh, even though he was uh, he was a Social Democrat, he uh, he asked Carl Clint to design the Prime Minister's uh, office, and it was was extremely expensive. The designer he just mentioned, Carl Clint. He plays an important role in this story. Clint's seen as the godfather of Danish design. He also taught many of the best-known Danish architects and designers of the 20th century, including Hans Wegner 
who will hear more about too. But first, we do need to get on board with this whole chair thing. Like why the chair is so important and so interesting as an object of design in the first place. They are signs of power, of, uh, it tells everything about the culture. Back in, in, in history, no one was sitting and it was only divine persons and persons with, with extreme power, uh, chieftains and, and such kings. And, and so they were sitting uh, to show that they were more powerful than, than other people. So it, it was a power instrument, something that you could show your power with in, in the beginning. In other words, those sturdy IKEA chairs that you got in college, which still do double duty in your dining room and study, they're descended from the thrones of kings and the cathedral of bishops. And time was that the not-so-humble chair was the embodiment of power and patriarchy. But then came civilization's let my people sit down moment. When we got democracy, then uh, more people got power and everyone got a chair. In, and uh, in the 20th century, there was chair, chairs for everyone. Indeed, with universal suffrage came the right to relieve one's universal suffering and park one's posterior properly. But even today, that's something we don't all enjoy. In fact, only a third to a half of the world's population typically uses a chair. Most people lounge or lie on the floor, sit on cushions or stools, or squat. Democracy, though, wasn't the only thing fueling the rise of the chair. As more countries industrialised, people started working in factories and offices, in jobs that required them to sit for long periods of time in front of machines and later computer screens. And from there, it was only a floor scrape away from the golden age of chairs. During the second half of the 20th century, the chairs became uh, symbols of your lifestyle or something you show your uh, lifestyle with. Uh, what sort of person are you? Do you like Anne Jacobsen, Hans Wegner? And, and so, so you, can, you can tell something with your chair, just like clothes. Uh, it's, it's lifestyle. Me? I'm a Finn Yule fan. And in the mistaken belief that it would help me integrate better to Denmark, hashtag Hugo, I bought one of his diplomat chairs. Yule designed the diplomat chair in 1961 for Danish embassies and consulates around the world. Now, I've no idea what the particular backstory of my chair is, but it's now being used as a de facto scratching post by my cat, meaning it may well have survived a few diplomatic scrapes in its time, only to succumb to the sharp claws of an ill-behaved ragdoll. But I digress. A chair, you see, isn't just a chair. It's the embodiment of culture, and with its arms, its legs, its seat and its back, it's the piece of furniture that most resembles us, human beings. And that's not all. The chair is the most difficult thing that a designer can do. Most designers agree on that. Now, you might well be thinking, a chair? Really? I mean, how hard can it be to make something that supports someone 42 to 45 centimetres above the ground? On the face of it, yes, that's all a chair does. But come on, you know a bad chair when you're sitting in it, or want to get out of it, or need to move it, or to stack it, or nowadays, perhaps to recycle it. There's a reason why the architect Ludwig Mies van der Rohe said it's almost easier to build a skyscraper than a chair. For product designers then, the chair represents the touchstone, the calling card, the make-or-break moment. And inasmuch as it's an expression of time, place, and culture, the chair offers the designer the chance to put his or her stamp on history. 
for example, at the School of Bauhaus and Le Corbusier, they talked about the chair as a machine, as, as an engineer construction, and they were obsessed with the construction. How can we make it more simple and industrial and, and so on? After the war, it, it was it was different. Uh, the chairs became more expressive and, and so on. And that's when Danish design uh, started. Time to get back to Kor Klint, the godfather of Danish design, and a sometime resident of the Danish Design Museum. Klint was a modernist. He especially admired the Bauhaus movement, which emerged from Germany in the 1920s. But he also had a conservative streak, and it meant he thought design students should learn from the past and explore other design traditions than their own. So he sent all his students to the older collections in the museum and said, you have to measure the Windsor chairs, the Chippendale chairs, the Chinese furniture. And some of the students, Bermonsen and Hans Wegner, they even made exact copies uh, with their hands uh, of the Windsor chair, for example. In other words, says Christian, the roots of so many Danish design icons lie in merry old England, in China, in the American shaker movement. but. And it's a pretty big but. Danish design is very much characterized by the fact that the Danes are not people who make revolutions. We have never had revolutions in our political uh, history, no revolutions in the design history. It's always about improving, changing a little bit, uh, evolution, um, taking ideas from others. It's not so much about innovation. It's much more about improving uh, existing idea, refining uh, uh, forms, materials, details, and, and so on. Don't panic, Pierre. The 23andMe report on Danish design may reveal some exotic ancestry, but when it comes down to it, the Danes really did come along and make the chair even better. And something else worked in Denmark's favour in the 20th century. Unlike Germany and Britain, which were fully industrialised by the start of the century, Denmark only really industrialised after the Second World War, which helped preserve its strong craft tradition. Indeed, many of the leading designers in the golden age of Danish design had trained as cabinet makers or as ceramicists and had worked with their hands and knew their materials intimately. And the legacy of Denmark's enduring craft tradition is huge. When you look at the, at the furniture, and that goes for the industrial design today too, it has this craft DNA in it. It's about the surfaces, sensing natural materials, being honest with the materials. It's about details, how to put two parts together, the, the joints, and, and, and so uh, Danes are obsessed with details. It's not so much about the big idea, it's always about the detail. Still, this whistle-stop history of how the chair became such a big deal in Denmark needs a watershed moment, and it came in 1949, when a group of American journalists visited a cabinet-making exhibition. I know, I know, it sounds riveting, but it must have been a big deal back then. The post-war equivalent of getting an all-expenses-paid, access-all-areas pass to, I don't know, Coachella or something. Anyway, the story goes that the hacks rocked up at the exhibition and spotted a new chair designed by Hans Wegner. He'd called it the round chair and said that with its curved top rail, 
It was the sort of chair that could have been made at any point in the past 200 years. The Americans really fell in love with this uh, chair and called it the chair, meaning the, the perfect chair. And Hans Wegner, he couldn't really understand it himself, that uh, that success. And, and he had made the chair in 48 hours just before the exhibition because his cabinet maker said to him, you, you have to make a real cabinet maker thing to me because he had been working in plywood like Charles Eames and, and other international designers and and spending months doing some uh, a breakthrough in, in, in new technology. But the Americans, they like this uh, conservative uh, craft. Indeed, in 1950, Interiors magazine described it as the most beautiful chair in the world. Of course, it seems somewhat ironic that a chair designed in just 48 hours was dubbed the chair, as though it settled the question of whether a chair could ever be perfect because it certainly didn't settle the matter for Wegner. I think he's, he's the one uh, ever in history and all over the world who was most obsessed with chairs. He designed uh, around 500 uh, different chairs because he had to prove that you could do it better. When he had done one, he, he started thinking, but I could have done this detail different and what uh, would happen if I does this and that. At the end of his life, he said, there's no perfect solution to the chair. You can always do it uh, better. Wegner wasn't the only mid-century Danish designer obsessed with ideals of form and function. In the quest for perfection in furniture, something of an arms race kicked off, only with teak and mahogany instead of plutonium and uranium. And many of the other uh, Danish designers, they thought they, they also had to prove, uh, you have to prove yourself uh, with, with the chairs. They just wanted to, to be the best in, in that field, so, so they kept uh, competing with each other also at the exhibitions. Uh, can I, I do a new chair and uh, can it be done in a better way? It's this era that gave us so many of the chairs we know and love today, and which grace many homes, offices, and hotel lobbies the world over. Chairs with exotic names like the swan, the egg, the ant, and the sausage. Okay, maybe not the last one. And it was around this time that Danish design started to acquire a kind of mythological status, helped along by those who championed its democratic values, and the idea that everyone should own one good chair. A decade after they had first wowed American journalists, two of Wegner's round chairs were used in the 1960 presidential debate, providing a pleasingly padded platform for the posteriors of po-faced potentates Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. The Danes told the story that uh, Kennedy, he liked the, the democracies in Scandinavia and therefore he had chosen that uh, chair and, and the chair became a symbol of, of uh, Western democracy and, and, and so but. That's not the true story. Uh, actually, it was the, the owner of the broadcast station who was uh, obsessed with Danish, with Danish furniture. Along with Kennedy and Camelot, however, the 1960s brought pop art and plastic, and baby boomers who turned their noses up at the staid wooden furniture of their parents' generation. Which, among other reasons, is why Danish modern design fell out of fashion. But at the turn of the millennium, growing political and economic uncertainty brought with it a nostalgia for simpler times, for retro furniture, fashion and design. I mean, who didn't attend a Mad Men-themed wedding back in the aughts? An interest in Danish modern design 
began to grow once again. I discovered it in the auction houses. It, it had been very cheap for a long time and no one wanted to buy it. And, and then the prices were suddenly increasing enormously. And, and now a Danish design from mid-20th century is the most important auction object you can buy. It's uh, uh, the, the most expensive it's more expensive than things from the Bauhaus school from the Wiener Werkstätte and, and other periods uh, English furniture from the 18th century which was uh, the antiquities uh, before the, the uh, um, expensive things uh, the, for some reason uh, those Danish things are, are even more expensive now no kidding a quick look online shows mid-century design selling for eye-watering prices at auction houses in Copenhagen, much of it being snapped up by antiques dealers, who then sell it on in the US and Japan for frankly astronomical sums. The popularity of these classic Danish designs has also made them a target for thieves and counterfeiters, which is a topic for a whole other episode, believe me. The Danish Design Museum also started to become aware of the growing interest in mid-century design. Closer to the chair, the light Christian so says he and his colleagues began seeing more people from overseas just, uh, asking about its chair collection, the vast majority of which was in storage. So they did the sensible thing and gathered a bunch of them for a permanent exhibition. If you look at the chairs and compare them and see how the developers... Right now, the museum has 113 chairs on display out of 1,000 in its collection, which is forever expanding. There can be different reasons for adding it. Uh, one reason could be that it continues this uh, tradition uh, of uh, Danish design with studying history. And so another reason could be that it's something completely new, uh, a new material, a new form, a new way of constructing it, uh, a, new, a new style or something. And just as the Danish chair has international roots, so too does the museum have a progressive open-door policy when it comes to acquisitions. Whisper it softly, but you don't even have to be Danish to design a Danish chair. For example, a few years ago, he added a chair produced by the English designer Jasper Morrison. He told me that he's trying to work completely like Baumonsen and Hans Wegner. He's always studying history and trying to improve on it and make it uh, what he calls uh, super normal, uh, very um, archetypical in, in, the, in the design. And that's not all. You see, it took an English designer to persuade Christian that, yes, the world really does need another chair. Before I met Jasper Morrison, I would, maybe I would have said, uh, no, I, I don't think so. Because if you're rational and, and say a chair is just about carrying you uh, 42 centimetres over the ground... But uh, the chair expresses uh, our time and we have to express ourselves. What are we? What, what is our, our, uh, our time? And, and that's also what Jasper Morrison said because someone criticized him and said, you just improved the, a little bit on, on that old uh, Tony chair or, or something like that or that old Italian chair. But, but, but he says, uh, no, I'm doing it the way we do it in our time. It's a persuasive argument that a chair is never just a chair. Like any artefact, it's an expression of time, place and culture. What then is Christian's favourite chair? 
Oh, that's a difficult, uh, very difficult question. <laughs> but actually, uh, my favorite chairs are some of the Bauhaus pieces by Marcel Breuer because I, I've seen so many Danish chairs that <laughs> it, it becomes too much for me. <laughs> um, but I, I do not have one uh, favorite uh, chair uh, from <laughs> from the. Uh, I could say Hans, one of Hans Wegner's. Uh, chairs uh, maybe but uh, there's so many <laughs> that was Christian Holmstel Olesen the head of collections and exhibitions at the Danish Design Museum in Copenhagen and the author of The Danish Chair An International Affair coming up we hear from Jenny Porter the editor of Arc Journal a brand new magazine about architecture design and art but first a quick word about Mother Tongue Media's other new podcast. Hi, I'm Peter Stannis, and I'm the host of The Danish Debate, another podcast on Mother Tongue Media. I'm taking a deep dive into Danish society and politics ahead of the upcoming general election. We're talking climate, the media, immigration, and so much more. Find The Danish Debate on your favorite podcast app. Now back to Archipelago. We're trying to make it very much about ideas and attitudes and the people rather than just the stuff. That's architecture and design writer Jenny Porter talking about Arc Journal, the new magazine she edits, which was launched this spring. I stopped by her airy Copenhagen offices recently to discuss the state of Danish design, 70 years after American journalists first swooned at the sight of Hans Wegner's round chair. And she was quick to remind me that the market for Danish design hasn't always been buoyant. There's a number of people that I know who are dealers in Danish design. And they started their businesses sort of 20 to 25 years ago. And they will all tell you that nobody was interested when they started their businesses. They could buy this stuff for nothing. There really wasn't much of a market. People in Denmark didn't appreciate it because they were surrounded by it. There was a guy that I interviewed for a story. He said, I just grew up with all this stuff. It didn't excite me at all. Um, And the only reason why he had it in his house was because he got his mother's cast-offs when she got something new. How things have changed. Today, it's not unheard of for dealers to buy Danish modern furniture at auction in Copenhagen, only to sell it overseas for three or four times what they paid for it days earlier. But what about the market for contemporary design? There is this huge thirst for all things Danish or Scandinavian. Um, It's why, you know... American companies like Knoll and Herman Miller, two giant, and Hayworth is another one, three giant American furniture makers um, paying hundreds of millions of dollars to buy Danish brands. Jenny's talking about some of the most eye-catching deals in the design world in recent years. The US furniture giant Knoll snapped up the Copenhagen-based furniture and homewares designer Muto for a cool $300 million dollars while the Michigan company, Herman Miller, whose portfolio includes the best-selling Aeron office chair, bought a stake in Hay, the Copenhagen-based brand known for its trendy furnishings and accessories. Jenny, who's also a well-established food writer, has an interesting theory about how contemporary Danish designers 
have branded themselves. One of the founders of Muto was actually a founding shareholder in Noma. And he was the guy, he's a marketing person. He came up with the expression New Nordic, or he certainly contributed to that expression. And when they set that company up, they called the furniture New Nordic. And in a way, it's not dissimilar to what happened with the food. So you have this kind of revolution, which has an energy and excitement. And it, it, it excites people who are really sick of the same old, same old. And it has this really distinctive Nordic, say, or Danish kind of feel to it. And then I think what happens is it's almost like, and this has definitely happened with the food, it then evolves into something that's much more grown up in a way where people are a lot more relaxed about what what the references are. So instead of saying, oh, no, it all has to be local, we can't use olive oil as we did with food, it's the same with the chairs. It's actually quite fine to pick and mix both from Denmark or the world and also in terms of materials and styles and designs. And so people have a kind of a freedom. It wasn't always like that, you see. There was a time, 15, 20 years ago, when young Danish design students struggled to sell their work to major design houses. If you were a chair designer back then, you were expected to ape the classics of the mid-century rather than do anything particularly original or inspired by other cultures or traditions, which was somewhat ironic, to say the least. If you go back to um, Venya particularly, I mean, the wishbone chair, which is probably the one chair that you are more likely to see in more stylish homes around the world, probably that the single most popular chair with the, you know, the cognoscenti, um, that's influenced by China, old Chinese chairs. I mean, he, he wasn't working in isolation. He was drawing on a typology that sort of existed way before um, anyone got excited about modern design in Denmark. And I think, you know, that in the end, that's probably exactly the same thing as happening now. I think that the difference now is that these younger people coming in are more relaxed about, about bringing in those other influences. Now, we've done well to get this far without mentioning that quintessentially Danish concept of cosiness, which seems to dovetail with the craze for all things Scandinavian. If you talk about the whole sort of hygge thing, that probably the people out there in the world who are kind of trying to have more meaningful life or create some kind of conditions for themselves at home or hankering for something, that they think they can create that with objects. You know, I mean, you could joke about lighting the candles, but it could equally be with a beautiful chair that's been handcrafted, um, that has this kind of heritage. You can easily criticise it by saying, well, you know, it's a bit stupid, actually. A chair isn't going to necessarily change your life. But on the other hand, there are, there's a venue chair that that you can sit in that's that's got a wicker seat that's been hand-woven. It's got this perfectly um, curved back that you can smell, you can feel the grain and the oak in in your hands. You can smell the kind of, oil and when you sit in it it's really comfortable and so there is something really kind of nurturing about it both physically but also aesthetically which you know can make you feel quite good actually and so then to the million dollar question about the supposed surplus of chair designs i think the world always needs another chair actually we we, in our first issue of um, arc elsa crawford wrote 
a really fantastic column about looking for the perfect chair. Now she's a British interior designer. She would she will do a project where by the time she goes through the sort of various criteria, she ends up with a handful of chairs. Um, usually one Danish, usually one Japanese. Even though you think there are all these chairs out there, once you go through the criteria, the aesthetics of it actually come in quite late, even though that's what the client thinks is the most important thing at the beginning of the conversation. But um, once you go through all of that, you discover, as she has, that there aren't, there isn't the chair that you want for this particular purpose, so you design one yourself. So yes, the world does need more chairs, although... The other thing that that she talked about particularly is how bad it is for all of us spending so much time sitting in chairs. So in actual fact, we'd probably be all better off standing up or sitting cross-legged, not on a chair at all. Of course, from Swiss exercise balls to standing desks, there's no shortage of alternatives to the chair today, especially in this neck of the woods. A little-known fact about Denmark? In 2014, it was the first country to make it mandatory for workplaces to give employees the option of using a desk that can be flipped between sitting and standing. But unsurprising, perhaps, for a country that entertains the notion of happiness at work, or Arbeitsglau. And yet, for all the newfangled ways of shaking us out of our sedentary ways, treadmill desks, anyone? I don't see the chair going away any time soon. How we make them, though, remains uncertain. Because while craftsmanship may have led to the golden age of Danish design, there are fears in the industry that traditional skills and crafts, including cabinet making and chair making, are in decline. One of the things I think is really interesting is that Finn, the house of Finjul, which makes extremely beautiful new issues of Finjul furniture, the most complicated pieces, some of the pieces for the most complicated chairs are actually made in Japan because they have a skill set that's no longer in Denmark. And I'm not sure what the timing is on sort of this loss of skills, but there's it's definitely something that people talk about. And I think it's very difficult to try to um, create the environment for people to start learning these skills again. In the end, Jenny says, it comes down to whether people appreciate their design heritage and the quality of craftsmanship. The thing is, you have to value it. You have to be prepared to pay the price of what it takes to have somebody hand make a piece of furniture for you. Um, and that's going to be really expensive. So if you, if you, if you can find people who are, who are prepared to value it, maybe in the same way that they're prepared to value that uber collectible chair that's from 50 years old that they bought at auction for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe if they're prepared to put the value on a contemporary piece then yes, you, you might start getting some of those skills coming back. And what gives her hope is that Denmark's design heritage runs very deep indeed. When you live here and you live and breathe it and you write about it and you, everywhere you go you see the PH lamp or the Venya chair or whatever, or the Jakobsen, you can get a bit sort of ho-hum and a bit bored with it. But if you sort of step back from it, what you realise, and this is really something I feel very strongly coming from um, Australia, is that people are growing up with this stuff. So they're, 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 they're growing up with a kind of aesthetic sensibility, um, which is really powerful. You can kind of criticise it because it, it, it can seem like a bit of a cliche almost, but then you have to 
accept that actually it is something that people are surrounded by. Um, and there are people, I've, you know, young people, I've, I've met them who they save up their first paychecks to buy one good chair. That was Jenny Porter, the editor of Arc Journal, and a firm believer that the world could always do with another chair, which will be music to the ears of Henrik Lorenson, a man who's no stranger to high-quality sound. That's because he used to be CEO of B&O Play, Bang & Olufsen's relatively budget-friendly audio brand. Earlier this year, Henrik launched Tact, a Copenhagen-based company that's aiming to rethink the way we design, build, and sell furniture. In particular, Tact says it wants to deliver high-quality design to more people in revolutionary, sustainable, and transparent ways. And its first three products are, well, chairs. I met Henrik at his central Copenhagen offices and decided to cut to the chase and ask him why he thinks the world needs not one, but three new chairs. I think it has been lingering along. So I've been sort of sitting at the back of my mind for quite a number of years. I've always been fond, that was why I went to B&O, been fond of design products, and I've been considerate why, why are design products relevant more than just aesthetic pieces you can put in your home to have a beautiful home. <laughs> and I remember there was like there was this, um, the Museum Louisiana in northern Copenhagen, there was this uh, exhibition uh, of um, the Danish designer Paul Kerham. Paul Kerham have these chairs now that are obviously often made of steel, uh, and leather and paper of yarn and stuff like that. But he was, he was known for shifting to steel. And there was this like small video screen on the side with different interviews of Paul Kerham. And he said in that interview, remember, he said, the reason I'm shifting to steel is because that's a modern industrial material that allows you to deliver amazing quality for a much lower price. And thereby I can get this product out to many, many more people and have a big impact on the society. So, I mean, the mid-century designers were driven by that sort of having impact for many people. And when you look at Paul Kerholm, they're amazing products, but they're super, super expensive, right? I thought, hmm, <laughs> something is wrong here, right? Why is it that they were moved away from that viewpoint to something where Danish design is super luxury and super premium? Henrik says he decided to apply the lessons he'd learned at B&O Play, which Bang & Olufsen launched in 2012 in a bid to woo younger customers who were more interested in mobile audio than in high-spec speakers. In other words, where B&O Play sought to democratise top-quality audio, Henrik wants to do as much to high-end furniture by selling it directly to customers at prices below market standard without, he says, compromising on design, materials or craftsmanship. The reason that furniture, design furniture, is so expensive is that not because necessarily there's a single person sort of earning all the money, but there's a lot of steps to go from actually making the product to the, and ends up in the customer's hands. Distributors and middlemen and retailers, and they have to sort of take that charge, all of them, of it. Like so most of the stuff you're paying for when you buy a designer product is just all the heat that goes on from the product that's made to actually ends up in, in your living room, right? As Henrik sees it, tact is merely part of the Danish design tradition of constantly evolving and marrying modern ways of going to market with superior craftsmanship. What happened in the 30s and the 40s, when it's like the, the birth of the mid-century uh, modern uh, movement, then was really saying, yeah, let's look forward with all the benefits you can get from industrialization, but let's do it with an homage to where we come from, the craftsmanship where we come from. So let's industrialize those, those values and scale it up in a sensible way. 
And and yeah, so that's that's what I'm trying to do with tact is saying, yeah, we're gonna be a super digital and modern business, like it's like so really rooted in modern ways of going to market and marketing ourselves and making our products, but we're also gonna be super good craftsmen. Now, all this talk of democratizing design and furniture in particular may remind you of another Scandinavian company, one that built a flat pack empire by delivering high-quality designs at an affordable price point. Henrik acknowledges IKEA's achievements, and inasmuch as two of the three chairs that Tact has launched come in flat pack, his company tips its hat to the Swedish giant. He did, however, insist upon one important addition to the design brief. We didn't want to have that experience when he's like, you're excited about the product, you buy the product, you pick it up at your package store and get it home, and then you have to like, oh, I have to put it together, it doesn't feel nice. So actually, when you actually open it up, you're going to feel the quality of the fittings are really nice. So we think that people almost get a closer sort of connection with your products and understanding of the design and the care that went into the product when they go through that assembly process. If TACT manages to make the process of assembling flat pack furniture not just a stress-free experience, but a pleasurable one, well, frankly, it ought to be in the running for another storied Swedish institution, the Nobel Peace Prize. TACT also ticks the right boxes in terms of environmental stewardship. Its chairs, for instance, are made entirely from FSC-certified wood grown in sustainable forests. For Henrik, though, sustainability isn't just about how something's produced. If you can make a product that people don't have to throw out because it's so good quality and the design is good, even better. And then when you recycle it, you make sure that people can actually recycle the components because of what often happens with furniture is it's a combination of steel and wood and what have you. It's all glued together and they just end up in the landfill. We give a five-year warranty on the product because they're really well-made. Um, but it also means that anything that breaks down on the product or if your kit breaks the back or draws on it or something like that, you can contact us and we can send you a repair piece to do it. Um, and then in the end, if you, I don't for some reason, you'd want to discard of it, you don't want, you can actually disassemble it in all the main parts and make sure they can be recycled normally. There is, of course, another argument you can easily make about sustainability, that, quite simply, we don't need any more chairs, that we can make do with the ones we've already got, and that we ought to stop making them. And yet, as we've seen, a chair isn't just a chair. It's an expression of a time and a place, a culture and a heritage. It's a way of connecting us across different times, places and cultures. And in both its form and its function, a chair reflects the era it was designed for. In this way, then, tax chairs mirror our modern era of conscious capitalism and environmental stewardship. Indeed, if we are going to make more chairs, then surely we should make them more sustainably, Make chairs that we can easily recycle, repair or replace. Chairs that fit seamlessly into the circular economy. And chairs that, like the mid-century classics before them, can be handed down from generation to generation. I think Danish design is not just about an aesthetic. Danish design is about a view on what good quality and good design is. I think the reason why Danish design values make sense is to have a place in people's home and uh, there's some longevity in the products. That's why the products end up lasting for a long time. They, they are deeper than just props in your in your home. I don't think furniture is something you buy as a piece of fashion because fashion means that you're going to be tired of it in a couple of years. You're going to throw it out and like with all the havoc that that creates. Um, and I think it doesn't underline what, what good design can actually bring. 
And there's one other way in which tact believes it has an opportunity to be thoughtful, to be tactful, to make the world a better place. And that's to remind people to sit down and listen more, to read more and to write more. All of these things are good sort of old virtues that still have a relevance in modern life. And we would just want to encourage people to do that. Right? So we actually want to have a campaign that's called Sit Down and Listen and remind people that it's not always just about shouting and talking and communicating what you think, but there's so much value in sitting down and listening what other people have to say and with empathy, understanding where they come from. And then, of course, you participate in dialogue and answer, but remember to listen and remember to read. So we have a sit down and read because reading is different from skimming. So you do a lot of skimming through the day, right? You rush to the news sites, you skim different headlines, you skim people's faces, you skim, you skim everywhere. But reading is really the act of putting thought and reflection into what you are reading. And you can read faces, you can read rooms, you can read design, you can read art, you can read books. We want to remind people of stepping back and reflecting about these things. So to us, that's an extension of sitting down. So sit down and read. Well, here's an idea. Sit down and listen to podcasts, and this one in particular. Indeed, I hope you're at the edge of your seat, or perhaps slumped into your favourite cosy armchair. Either way, though, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. This episode was written, produced and hosted by me, James Clasper, for Mother Tongue Media. The music is by two local artists, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. You can find links to their music on our homepage, archipelago.mothertongue.dk. And if you like this episode, take a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts. Better yet, share something on social media and tell your friends. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>